Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, October 8th. This week, we'll talk to Canada's Natural Resources Minister on the heels of the cancellation of the Energy East pipeline. What does it mean for future pipeline projects? Then, round four of the NAFTA negotiations gets underway Wednesday in Washington. What's the view from Mexico on the trade talks? Plus, what changes is the federal government considering to their proposed tax reform? And joining me now is Natural Resources Minister Jim Carr. Minister Carr, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be back. I have to start with uh, the big news about TransCanada deciding not to proceed with the Energy East pipeline. Mm -hmm. Uh, 14,000 jobs were said to be potentially created from the construction of this pipeline. What's your message to people who, you know, are already in a very struggling industry about the, the end of this project? that markets change and the capacity changes over time, but the regulatory process didn't change. So the very same rules that applied to other projects that were ultimately approved by the Government of Canada, the Enbridge three-line replacement, TransCanada, the same rules that we used would have been used this time, but conditions have changed and ultimately it's a business decision. TransCanada had to look at all of the various factors that are brought to bear when you're making these very important long-term decisions. And uh, we have to respect the fact that they took the decision, but we wanted to assure them and to assure Canadians uh, that the regulatory assessment would have been just the same for Energy East as it was with those other projects. So it's my understanding that TransCanada paused its application because of the expanded spo- scope, I'm sorry, of those of that review. Right. So you're saying it's a business decision, but when they paused their application, it was specifically because of the regulatory process. Well, we reassured them that we would assess the project the same way as we assessed other projects, and we would pay for the assessment so they wouldn't be out of pocket and the same rules and the same criteria would be used for this assessment as used for the others. We made that clear to them and we made that clear to Canadians. So the upstream and downstream emissions were assessed in every other project as well? No, but the principles that we announced in uh, January of 2016 said that the Government of Canada would assess upstream greenhouse gas emissions. But not downstream would, ones. That's right. So, we, so that would have been added used, in this case, which it would TransCanada... Have been added, it would have been added in the assessment, but... It but that's w- significant. No, be, no, because it's not significant, because we would have used the same criteria of assessment in this case as we used for the others. The National Energy Board is independent. It's quasi-judicial. They determined the scope. The Government of Canada is positioned to make the decision. We would have made the decision using the same criteria as the other projects were. On that scope, though, the minister, for example, the energy minister in Alberta called it historic overreach. Deciding the merits of a pipeline on downstream emissions is like judging transmission lines based on how its electricity will be used. Is she wrong? Uh, That was the National Energy Board's scope. That would not have been the criteria that the Government of Canada used in assessing the project. So, uh, just so that I'm clear, so it's the the NEB's scope which ultimately determines its decision. And then would that not go to Cabinet for your consideration? Yes, it would. But the assessment that we would use would be consistent with the principles that I announced with Minister McKenna in January of 2016. So you wouldn't have used that assessment? Which were exactly the same as we used when we approved Line 3 expansion and Trans Mountain. But ultimately, if the NEB had decided against the pipeline going ahead based on its own scope, that would never have gone to Cabinet for consideration. Uh, it would have gone to Cabinet for consideration, uh, but and we would have used the okay. criteria that were part of the principles that we announced. And I made that clear to 
to the company uh, and to others across the country who were asking the same questions that you're asking now. And I believe that we communicated that effectively enough. And ultimately, the decision whether or not to proceed with the application lies with the proponent. And for their own reasons, they made the decision. Let me ask you on behalf of, I think, a lot of people, uh, especially maybe in the oil patch watching mm -hmm. today, uh, they see, you know, even though your government did approve Kinder Morgan's pipeline expansion, they see that being held up in court or potentially being held up in court. They see a decision like today. Uh, they see, for example, Northern Gateway. And they wonder, can a pipeline ever get built? Well, a pipeline can be approved. Uh, we approved Kinder Morgan because we knew that the 15,400 jobs were important, particularly to Western Canada. We approved it because we don't want 99% of our exports of oil and gas to go to one country, the United States. So we opened up the Asian market. We know that we have to be in partnership with Indigenous communities, or these projects are unlikely to be built. So we think that the three pillars that are necessary to make an informed decision, economic growth, environmental stewardship, indigenous partnerships, were all in place for those decisions. But can you understand, I guess, how people would watch from the outside and say, okay, you approved one pipeline, now we see something like Energy East uh, not going ahead. You know, if I'm in the oil industry, what cause for optimism do I have? How do I know that a pipeline will ever you actually want, get If there? I'm in the oil industry, I want to make sure that the regular, regulatory process is clear, that the timelines are well known, that it carries the confidence of Canadians, and it will be those values that will drive our permanent reform and modernization of environmental assessment including the National Energy Board, which we have promised to deliver to Canadians. In the regulatory environment this country has right now, though, could something like the Canadian National Railway ever get built? Well, I don't know. It's a hypothetical question. You need uh, to It's have, hypothetical, but I think people need, are interested in this in this sort yeah. of strictness of this Well, I guess the or, answer, I guess or, the answer yeah. would be if those criteria were satisfied, there would be no reason why it shouldn't be built. But you have to have somebody who's prepared to build it, and that's a proponent. The proponent is looking for predictability and clarity. They want to know the rules of the assessment process. They have to be clear. We'll make sure going forward that they're as clear as they can and should be. And in this case of Energy East, we made it clear that the same rules that apply to other decisions would have been applied to this one. And finally, I know that you're heading off uh, this week to uh, a big yes. conference. Tell me a bit about it. 600 delegates from around the world will come to Winnipeg, my favorite place, <laughs> uh, to talk about Canada's future energy mix. And everything will be debated. Uh, there will be people coming from the United States, from Germany, uh, from uh, major operations in Norway. Oil and gas will be represented, the nuclear industry, uh, clean technology, renewables. And the question we're posing is, what do you want Canada's energy mix to look like a generation from now? It is probably uh, the most comprehensive conversation about this subject ever in Canadian history. It's timely for all of the reasons we know so well as we move in a transition to a lower carbon economy. We're engaging Canadians. More than 200,000 have already given us their view on our website. And we're looking forward to using this feedstock of creativity as we roll out Canada's energy future. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks very Thank much you. for your time, Minister Carr. I Thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure.
Nearly 80% of Mexico's exports go to the United States. President Trump calls it a trade imbalance and promises to rip up the deal if that so-called imbalance isn't leveled with a new NAFTA deal. So what's at stake for Mexico? Joining me now is Mexico's ambassador to Canada, Dionisio Perez Jacome. Ambassador, it's wonderful to have you on our program. Bashi, it's great being here, being with your audience. Thank you so much. I wanted to start off, of course, by asking you about NAFTA. And given, based, based on your observations, given how talks have been progressing so far, do you think that deadline of the end of this year is attainable? We believe it is. We believe um, it's possible to reach a win-win-win scenario um, in the different topics. It's a matter of advancing the negotiation. Now, we have been um, advancing in the three rounds through, first, there were conceptual presentations, then some positions were tabled, some text. We have uh, begun to gain momentum with um, some chapters uh, being finalized, like the small and medium-sized enterprises. And uh, there is a, um, a, a good uh, set of um, areas where we have been advancing. Now, in the most sensitive areas, yes. we haven't advanced much because we are still waiting for some specific proposals. Now, this is expected to take place uh, in the Washington round. And, um, well, we will see it from there. And l let me ask you about a couple of those specific chapters. Uh, dairy, we're expecting the U.S. to, for example, next week or this week, t table their uh, demands for dairy. Does Mexico have a problem with Canada's supply management? We have problems with um, We have made public, actually, where we see the most sensitive areas. If you want me, let me, let me share them with you. One of them is um, certainly we do not agree with the focus on the deficit per se. Mm -hmm. Uh, we believe the deficit, the trade deficit, should be a resultant and not um, an objective. Uh, why? Simply because we, we can't control it if we set it as an objective. It's the result of a macro policy, of the capacity of a country to, to save, among many other um, areas. Also, um, for, for us, it's very important, as it is for Canada, the dispute settlement mechanism. We um, believe any trade agreement has to have fair, transparent, strong, and efficient system of dispute settlement. Um, on the um, rules of origin, uh, and particularly in the auto sector, which is uh, a high um, regional content of 62.5 percent, um, and there is uh, this idea that was uh, mentioned since the July uh, 17 document that the USTR presented where they insinuated that uh, they might ask for some national um, content more than regional content. Well, it, it is a sensitive issue uh, simply because it, it has been working as a regional um, integration in the creation of value chains. Uh, so we, we will be looking at, at topics such as those, uh, particularly, um, again, hopefully they will be tabled in, in Washington. Mexico has made very clear uh, where we are on those topics, and, um, and we will see from uh, once we know the text. Are there concerns from Mexico, though, about Canada's supply uh, management system? Well, in, on the supply management, uh, uh, again, we will look at all the topics, uh, but uh, at all the topics in the 28 tables, and depending on what it's presented, uh, we, will, we will... Our objective is to make the NAFTA the most competitive, the most competitive region as, uh, as we have seen, that has been increasing. Is Mexico, like Canada, prepared to walk away from the table over dispute settlement? Mexico has is made Is it a clear, red line? Well, Mexico has made it clear where the red line is. And we 
certainly will not accept increases in tariffs or imposition of quotas. We want these uh, negotiations to increase trade, to increase competitiveness. And again, with all the different uh, topics that are being discussed, we are willing to sit down, to analyze and, and understand what each country presents. And, uh, but at the end, what uh, should come out, it's a win-win-win. It has to be something that makes NAFTA better off, that increases competitiveness, that makes us advance in an agenda of inclusiveness and responsibility, that allows us to incorporate elements uh, um, that are present in the 21st century, uh, technology, telecommunications, e-trade, um, and certainly to have a, a strong dispute settlement. Th those are the priorities. Given the unpredictability of the rhetoric coming from the White House, is there any preparation underway for a plan B or, you know, the possibility of no NAFTA? Well, we, Realistically. we are, we are um, fully committed to making this work. If um, at the negotiation table, the negotiating teams know each other, and as I was mentioning, we have been uh, getting the low-hanging fruits, if you want. We, need, we still need to go for the more difficult ones, but we remain committed in trying to reach these uh, scenarios through NAFTA. Uh, and uh, until we get uh, some um, different elements, uh, we remain committed to, 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 to achieving a, a, a good NAFTA too. And if, uh, understanding that it's hypothetical, but if NAFTA isn't resolved or if it doesn't, if it doesn't, the renegotiations are not successful, is there any sort of consideration or entertaining of the idea of a bilateral agreement with Canada? I think it's too early uh, to, to think about that. We are fully concentrated on the trilateral agreement and negotiating, as I mentioned, um, because we believe it's possible. Well, we'll be watching this week in Washington. Thank you very much for your time, well, thank Ambassador. Thank you for the invitation. Great to have you here. Late last week, the Liberals hinted they're considering changes to their proposed tax reforms for small businesses. This after months of consultations and outrage from small business owners who claim the government's so-called tax fairness plan is anything but. So what changes is the government considering? Joining me now is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Finance, Joel Lightbound. Mr. Lightbound, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your time today. Uh, are these proposed changes going to be walked back? Well, no, they're not. We uh, remain steadfast in our objective to bring more fairness to our tax system. That was the, the idea behind the proposals. However, uh, we've gone through your consultations and uh, we've listened to Canadians from coast to coast and we want to make sure that we get things right, that we get these changes right, that there are no unintended consequences. So that's why we, uh, we've listened and we're generally reviewing uh, the results of these consultations to make sure that there are no unintended consequences in the changes that we've proposed. But we have to realize that there are currently some inequities built in our tax system that we want to address that make it so that for some of the wealthiest individuals it's encouraged to incorporate to have advantages that most of your viewers, most Canadians, don't have access to when it comes to income sprinkling, for instance, or passive investment. So am I, I just want to make sure I'm clear then, yeah. are these reforms proceeding as proposed no, or not will a, there be changes? No, no, uh, and I'm, I'm, maybe that's my understanding of the English. There will be changes uh, and there will be changes reflecting what we've heard from Canadians, but the objective remains the same. Uh, so what changes are we talking about based on what you've heard and your government has heard from Canadians? Well, there are certain things that we've heard, namely, for instance, uh, there have concerns that have been raised about uh, intergenerational transfers. We want to make sure that this is not impacted, that 
genuine intergenerational transfers of the farm, of the businesses, are not impacted by the changes. And so we want to make sure that the details we get right. Uh, we've heard some concerns about uh, perhaps some unintended consequences on women entrepreneurs. And we've always been clear we would never put forward a measure that disadvantaged women over men. So those are the things we're taking a close, hard look at to make sure that we get the changes right. I want to pick up on that point because I wanted to ask if you, if you understand the outrage that these proposals generated. I understand that there is a base of support for the message that you're trying to get across with them. But the proposals themselves, a lot of small business owners feel that they incorporate, they take advantage of these of, of the tax system as it is because it helps mitigate the enormous risk that they mm -hmm. take on. Do you understand why these proposals evoke the reaction that they did? Well, I think it's, it's important uh, also to set the record straight. We have no intention of uh, impacting middle class business owners, small business owners. We're keeping the tax rate as low as it is, and currently it's the lowest in the G7, and we want businesses to continue to invest in their businesses to create growth. But at the same time, uh, we have to realize that there are some Canadians who've used private cor corporations to gain advantages that are not afforded to the rest uh, of Canadians, and that's when, where we want to bring some more fairness. Where's I, the line, though? Where's the line when you say a middle-class business? You know, everybody who owns a business, whether they do well or they do not, I mean, what is the line? Well, just for to give you, you an idea, they all when, take on when risk. we look at passive investment income, which has been uh, one of the proposals, 83% uh, of all passive investment income goes in the hands of 1.7 Canadian corporations uh, earning above $250,000. So this is really the issue here is that we've, we've seen corporations, uh, certain corporations have advantages that are not afforded to the rest of Canadians. And I understand the, the concerns and we'll always be there to support small business owners to make sure that they are in an environment that's conductive to growth. And we would, we, we've been from the get-go, the government of growth. We've created 400,000 jobs in the last two years. We have the fastest growth in the G7, the fastest we've seen in the last 15 years. And we want to maintain that. So we want to make sure that businesses keep investing in their businesses, that we support small business owners. But at the same time, we think, uh, we strongly believe that a thriving and successful middle class is good for the economy. The economy is good for everyone. So if your government is so concerned about uh, tax fairness for rich Canadians, why not close the stock options loophole? Well, I think these are uh, issues that we're, we're, we're thinking about always. This, this proposals, these proposals that we've, that we've put forward, uh, they're part of a plan to bring fairness in our tax system and to, to provide more air and breathing room for the middle class. This is why the first thing we did was to raise taxes on the wealthiest 1%, lower them for 9 million Canadians. And the Canada Child Benefit that we've put forward is helping hundreds of thousands of kids to be lifted out of poverty and is putting money back into our economy. So I think we're looking at for tax evasion. That's another aspect that we've been looking at. We've invested $1 billion in the last two budgets uh, to go after tax havens, like after tax evasion, which is uh, helping us recuperate billions of dollars, while the previous government would not focus on tax havens and tax evasions. And former Minister of Revenue, Mr. Blackburn, said recently, under the Harper Conservatives, this was not a priority. So we're looking at all different ways to bring more fairness uh, for the middle class and, uh, and to our tax system. With respect to that, doesn't exactly answer the question of why you haven't attacked the stock options loophole. Uh, you know, a study has estimated that three quarters of a billion dollars annually is forfeited in revenue for the government, provincial and federal, uh, because of of this option. Uh, mm -hmm. Many, many, you know, many CEOs take advantage of. Why not uh, go after that? As your government had hinted in the past, you might instead of 
targeting, you know, what many would say targeting uh, smaller business owners. Well, we're not targeting small business owners. This okay, but then why not go after clear. stock options? Well, we're going That's right now. That's a huge pot of money you could From the get-go, we've been going after tax havens, tax evasions, and we're looking at all sorts of options to make sure when that we get When will you decide fairness. on stock options? That I can't, uh, I can't tell you right now. This is not uh, what we we're focused on right now is making sure that the middle class has what it needs to, to, to thrive and be successful. And that's why we've given money back to the middle class. We've helped with the Canada Child Benefit that's lifting hundreds of thousands of kids out, out of poverty. And I think that's good for the economy. That's good for business owners. Uh, and I think you have to look at the broader picture. We've seen in this country and around the world for the last few decades rising inequalities. And we think that we stand to benefit from a society where everyone has a fair shot at life, where we have a tax system that's fair. This is one step in the process, these proposals. And we want to get this right. We've listened to Canadians, and we'll keep listening until we, we propose this final submission. Okay, thanks very much for your time. Thank you nice very to much. meet you, Mr. Lightband. Nice meeting you, too. And as families gather around the country to celebrate Thanksgiving, here's what's on the agenda for some members of Parliament. My name is Dean Allison. I am from the amazing riding of Niagara West, situated between Hamilton and St. Catharines. And what Thanksgiving means to me, it's a great time to get together with family and friends, and of course, enjoy really good food. It's the opportunity to take a day off and allow you to eat as much as you want. Uh, but all kidding aside, it's the turkey, it's the lasagna, it's the ham, it's whatever is being prepared. Uh, and it has to take time having lunch over two or three hours. My name is Daniel Blakey. I'm the Member of Parliament for Elma Transcona. And Thanksgiving for, for me really is just a time to spend with family and, and, to, and to think about all the things that we're fortunate to have here in Canada. One of the things that I think of when I think of Thanksgiving are my aunt's meatballs, actually. Uh, they're, they're excellent and there's only so many times a year that, that you get an opportunity to have them. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, so that's something that I always look, look forward to uh, when it comes down to Thanksgiving. Hi, my name's Stephanie Cousy. I'm Member of Parliament for Calgary Mindapore. And my favorite thing about Thanksgiving is spending time with friends and with family and giving thanks for the beautiful country that we live in. Every year we go around the table and everyone at the table gives thanks for one special thing in particular. And usually this can take the uh, shape of a craft or that. For example, one year we did a Thanksgiving turkey where everyone wrote what they were thankful for on a feather and we assembled a beautiful turkey with all of our gratitudes. Randy Boissonneau, Member of Parliament for Edmonton Centre. And Thanksgiving for me is a time of reflection and a time to uh, reconnect and hang out with uh, family and friends. And if I'm really uh, straightforward, to spoil my niece and nephews. Definitely food is a central element for us around Thanksgiving. Turkey and mom's pumpkin pie. I don't know, she's got the secret spice combination. I'm Cheryl Hardcastle. I'm the Member of Parliament for Windsor Tecumseh. And Thanksgiving means to me gratitude. We're all expressing gratitude with togetherness, uh, sharing time together, sharing a meal together, and preparing from scratch. That's, I think, a magic time for a lot of people with young ones, just to be peeling potatoes together. So simple pleasures like that. And of course, there's the turkey calling. Turkey calling, you do it just to kind of fool around and lighten the mood on, on Thanksgiving when people are talking politics and religion. <laughs>
Hello, I'm Ikra Khalid, Member of Parliament in Mississauga, Erin Mills, and Thanksgiving in Canada means for me an opportunity to come together as Canadians, as family, and to reunite with each other. We all live very, very busy lives, and over this weekend, I know I will be connecting with my family. The main point about Thanksgiving dinner is, is the unity, that we can sit down together and break bread, whether that bread's recipe comes from the Americas or from Asia or from Europe. The idea is that we sit down and we break that bread together. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, globalnews.ca slash the West Block, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.